I'm Trevor Allred, and this is the 1888 Center Podcast. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to storytelling. Through creative collaboration, our programs are designed to provide tools for community innovation. This episode was produced at 1888 Center, located in the historic district of Old Town Orange, California. Welcome out to a live recording of the Grammar of Science and Technology. I'm the host, Trevor Allred, and tonight we're with Adam Becker. Hi. Here he is. (laughs) He's an astrophysicist and science writer, and tonight we're going to talk about his new book, What is Real? Let's welcome him on. Thanks for having me. Good to have you, man. Great to be here. Pleasure. Yeah. So one of my favorite aspects of this program, unique to or you know, in contrast to other ones, is that this draws an audience that would not typically associate as writers. But here you are with a full-on book that reads like a history, that is a history that reads, and there were moments I'm like, that's almost a, no- a novel, that's awesome. So <laughs> Thank you. I have to ask the question that we have to get into yeah. is this whole concept of what is a writer for you? When did you begin this process? Because I would like people to leave with that energy tonight. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really good question. Uh, well, I mean, the, there's the question of, of when I started thinking about these questions and the question of when I started thinking about, you know, writing a book. Hmm. Um, you know, I've been interested in quantum mechanics for a long time, but I didn't really think about writing a book until, you know, sometime, sometime when I was working on my PhD. I realized, you know, there's something funny going on here. I wish there were a good book about it. Uh, there isn't one. Maybe I could write one. Maybe I could go to the moon, too. That would be nice. Like, <laughs> Checklist. I, don't, I don't know how to make either of those things happen. I see. Um, but yeah, uh, after I finished my degree, uh, after I finished my degree, I, um, I moved out to California and... Um, and ended up working as a science writer at New Scientist magazine for a while, and where I was you know, writing about science news and features and whatnot. And then I went freelance, worked for the BBC, worked with the BBC a little while. I wasn't working there, but I did freelance work for them. Um, and then I decided, you know, I'd really like to write this book. Maybe I can make that happen. And, uh, and so, you know, it was the usual process. I, I put together a book proposal, found an agent, um, and my agent found me a book deal with a great publisher. Um, but, but if you're asking more like, how did I think about the writing process? I think, well, part yeah. of my, that will be the next question, but sure, something yeah. you said triggered a thought here. Yeah. Um, is it the idea of the book that got you writing or were you already kind of curious and you felt sort of you, that you were using language to get your ideas? Yeah. Uh, I mean, this was definitely an idea I had well before I realized, you know, I'd like to be a writer professionally. Oh, okay. Because, um, you know, I, I grew up reading popular science books. I was a big science nerd. Still am a big science nerd. Rock on. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I read those books, and a lot of them were about physics. And they say, you know, strange things about relativity and strange things about quantum physics and strange things about other things in physics. And I thought, oh, okay, those are all weird, but I'll understand them when I learn them. And then I learned nice. special relativity, which mathematically... You know, you can do that with high school math. Uh, 
And so it's not that hard to sort of get your head around the math. And I thought, oh, yeah, now all those weird things I heard about relativity, they make sense. Great. So when I learn quantum mechanics, it's going to be the same way. And so then I got to college, and I learned the mathematics of quantum mechanics, and I thought, no, this isn't better. This is worse. <laughs> this made everything a lot worse. It, it, it makes much less sense now. Yikes. Uh, and, and so I started asking annoying questions, and at one point, one of my professors actually said to me, well, you know, if that's the kind of question you're interested in, then why don't you go to the philosophy department? Oh. <laughs> and I... I <laughs> I, I, I thought, okay, yeah, fine, I will. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Showed them. Showed yeah, them. <laughs> so, so I did my, my undergrad in philosophy and in physics. Fabulous, and, wow. Um, and yeah, and then you know, realized you know, mm. there's some funny things going on here with the foundations of quantum okay. physics, uh, and it'd be nice if there were a book about it, like I said. Yeah. Um, and, and I was also thinking, you know, I don't know what I want to do with my career. I'd like to get a PhD, but I'm not sure that I want to stay in academia. Uh -huh. really like talking about science. I really like writing. I see. Maybe I could be a science writer. So yeah, uh, there's nothing, nothing more mysterious than that. But it's, it's, not, mm -hmm. it's not as if... I wanted to write a book, and then I said, okay, I want to write a book. What can I write a book about? It was more that, oh, I'm very interested in this subject. What can I do with that interest in this subject? Oh, I could write a book. Excellent. I see. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And would that be, just to throw, throw it out there, would you have felt equally maybe a podcast series would have been just as justice or um, some other mode to, con to communicate or books felt the right medium. Yeah, this felt like a book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in finding the right medium okay. for a particular subject, right? Like I, I used to, back when I worked at New Scientist, I also put together interactive features for their website. And, you know, it's really tempting when you have the ability to do something to just sort of throw that ability at everything. You know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But not everything requires an interactive website, right? Uh, gotcha. And this is, this is a history, you know? Like, this is the, the thing that really grabbed me was not just the conceptual issues in quantum mechanics, but mm -hmm. there was clearly something very strange going on in the history of the subject mm -hmm. that I didn't understand and that a lot of people didn't seem to understand, and I wanted to know what was going on there. Okay. And, and I think that, you know, history really benefits from the format of a book. Right uh, you know, it's, it's a, a linear format. It lets you go back and forth between different parts of it. If you want to reference something, it lets you go into greater detail than you can in almost any other format. Brilliant. Yeah. So when you found the right medium, how did you find the right scope of the project? Because it's quite, I mean, blending history and quantum, quantum physics, <laughs> you know, casual, right? Yeah, no, that's, you know, it's a Sunday evening, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, get a couple of beers and, uh, and, you know, wake up in the morning and all of a sudden you've got half a book. Yeah, <laughs> that no, sounds that's, great. That's how it worked. Yeah, no. <laughs> Done. We're done. Yeah, yeah, we're done. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Podcast over, right? It's over. Yeah, it's over. Um, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the glib answer is I didn't. Oh, yeah. It was the, the scope of the project was sort of something that came out of the constraints of being able to do the book in the first place. Oh, okay. Um, okay. You know, when I first started thinking about this, I thought, okay, you know, this is going to be a really big project. You know, I might have to go back to the origins of, of Newton's physics or, yeah. or, or something like that, you know, in order to explain what's, what's going on in quantum physics. Because, you know, there's a lot of questions about the relationship between Newtonian physics and quantum physics. And, and you know, I started trying to make an outline for this. And this was years before I actually wrote the book. Okay. But I tried okay. to make an outline. And it was just 
way too long. Yikes. And I didn't know what to do. And so I put it aside for a while. And then after I actually had some experience as a science writer, I realized, no, you know, you start the story as late as you can. Nice. You know, like if, if you're having trouble writing the first sentence of your book, <laughs> then, yeah, you can come back and fix the first sentence later. But if you're having trouble figuring out the first chapter of your book, it probably means you're starting your story too early. You Perfect. need to start later. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, once I had an agent... He said, yeah, you don't want to try to sell this book as more than 90,000 words because no one's going to buy it. You're not going to find a publisher for more than that. That's also a problem, huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then my publisher said, yeah, okay, 90,000. And I said, great, you know, 90,000. And I prided myself in the work I'd done before that as sort of hitting my word count pretty nicely. And so then, of course, this is the one time I didn't. <laughs> so the book is like 115,000 words. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know. It's still, it's within like, what, 20, 25%? Not a big deal. <laughs> it's, worth, it's worth the dig. It's gold. It's yeah. gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Um, but yeah, I mean, with that kind of constraint, there's no way that I could have started earlier than I did. And there's uh -huh. no way that I could have gone later than I did. You know, okay. I went up to... I went up to the present day, but the detailed picture in the book kind of stops around 1990. Uh -huh. Because... You know, when you're writing history, it's always easier to talk about something that's farther back because you can tell with the context of time what things and what people and what concepts are, are salient and important to the story and what things aren't. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with something that happened, you know, five years ago, that's just not obvious yet. Totally. And so there was, there was not really a good way to incorporate stuff from later on. That's one thing I did like was yeah. you had mentioned a series happening in Europe and then meanwhile you would reference this other situation in the states and yeah. it was kind of bringing everything together and yeah, that yeah, is yeah. that's clarity i mean that just that's also research right i mean you dug hard for that <laughs> yeah 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 no the the book the book required a lot of research it absolutely did i mean the the physics behind it was something i've been interested in for years and years before i started working on it seriously in mm -hmm. you know late 2014 or 2015 but um but the history i only knew bits and pieces oh, okay. and some of what i knew was wrong you know i oh, mean there man. there's Right. There's a difference between, you know, what actually happened and like the stories that we pass down about what happened. Right. You know, there's a, um, so term historians use folk history. Right. It's the history of an event that's passed down by the people who are sort of still impacted by it. Mm -hmm. And so physics has a folk history. Right. That folk history sort of gives us a way of thinking about, you know, how our subject got started or how it dealt with certain crises. But that folk history is mostly unreliable. And if uh -huh. you go back and actually look at, you know, the writing of the people who, was, who were involved in the history of quantum physics mm -hmm. and, you know, the documentary evidence, interviews, that kind of thing, you start to realize, oh, no, I need to start from scratch. I need to throw that out and take a look at what really happened. And dig back into it. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So when you were sifting through all the possibilities, what do you have any techniques in line that you use to kind of keep the thing straight? Yeah. I mean, at times it almost felt like, um, you have like protagonists at yeah. moments, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like one of my guiding principles when I was working on this thing, uh, you know, it's a book about physics. And physics is great. I love physics. I think a lot of people really find physics really interesting. But, but in general, people find people more interesting than they, you know, than ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people are always going to be more interested in people than they are in ideas. Yeah, yeah. And so if you want to make an idea interesting, you need to wrap it up in a person or in a group of people. I see. Um, and, and so that sort of made the format of a history kind of natural for this. Gotcha. And, uh, and so then I said, okay, you know, 
If I want to introduce an idea, then I need to motivate it with one of the stories involving one of the people. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't do that, then I'm just going to be introducing idea after idea after idea, and eventually this is just going to be a textbook. Just a list, yeah. Right, and that's not what I want, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you, a list of ideas is, is not an interesting story to read, and it's not a good representation of what actually happened, right? You know, it would be like, it would be like trying to tell a story of a presidential election by detailing the exact locations of every single person involved at all times in a spreadsheet, right? Like gotcha. that's not, yes, that's factual, <laughs> but that's not, not only is that not a story, that's not actually faithful to the facts because you're not representing them in a way that people can understand them and Excellent. you're not drawing the connections that are there. That's right. Yeah. So that's actually, so that might be our perfect bridge to the book because that's yeah. a, a whole mission. You have this attempt where you want to, the question is, why are, what merits a story from looking at results of measurements? Mm, and so yeah. this is, this is the time, this is the, I don't know, the line that you use to, to connect everything? Is this your approach? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the conceptual thread running through the book is this question, I mean, it's the title of the book, right? What is real? Yeah. Um, it's, it's the question of, okay, you know, we have this phenomenally successful theory of the world, quantum mechanics and quantum physics more generally, the most successful theory in the history of science by almost any measure. You know, wow. it, it explains such a, such a wide diversity of phenomena to such a hilariously ridiculous degree of accuracy. Like, it's really... Uh, is really astonishing. I mean, you know, we used quantum mechanics to figure out why the sun shines Dang. and how our eyes see that the sun shines, right? I mean, that's, that's just completely ridiculous. And, uh, and, and, you know, most of the technology in this room, maybe with the exception of that printing press over there, Classics. <laughs> runs on quantum mechanics. You know, most of the circuitry in that amp over there, mm -hmm. in these microphones, in the phones, in our pockets, all of that stuff runs on quantum mechanics completely. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, it even explains why this stool is not sinking through the floor right now, because quantum mechanics explains why things stay solid, like anything. That's you know, wild. floors or yeah. your body. Uh, so, so yeah, you know, clearly this is a phenomenally successful theory. Um, but there's it, a problem. Yeah, and the problem is, you know, the theory has to be, if it's so successful, it has to be pointing at something in the world. There must be something in the world that quantum mechanics is sort of latching onto mm -hmm. in order to make its predictions come true, right? Mm -hmm. It must be at least approximately describing some real thing in the world. Okay. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't work so well, right? Because, you know, if, if, it, if, if it worked that well, but had no connection whatsoever to the stuff in the world, even an indirect connection, then how could we possibly account for the fact that it works so well? It would be, it would be a miracle, right? Gotcha. Um, and, and yet, the standard answer that you find in quantum mechanics textbooks and the standard answer that was promoted by most of the people who were responsible for first, first putting together quantum mechanics, this standard answer to the question of what does quantum mechanics tell us about the world uh, is 
nothing or don't ask that question or that's a dumb question, shut up. Gotcha. Uh, and that's, that's not only a profoundly unsatisfying answer, uh, I argue, and, and many philosophers and physicists agree, uh, that it's a philosophically bankrupt answer. Though, though when I say many physicists, I still mean a minority of physicists. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I see. Yeah. So what, if, you, if you had to put a, a, a quick goal to your book, what are you wanting to solve or approach or just clarify? I want people to understand that quantum mechanics is very successful and we don't know what it's telling us about the world. And that physicists are still debating what it tells us about the world. That debate is an important part of the scientific process. And that the physicists who think that we've got it all figured out are wrong. Okay. Yeah. So there's plenty to explore still. There's what? Plenty to explore still. There's, yes. I mean, questions oh, yes. abound. Okay. Yes. Yes, right indeed. On. Yeah. So there was, a, there was a moment coming up. It was um, in the post-war chapter, moving out of that section. Yeah. And there was... Um, I almost caught like a sense of lament, like yeah. there was a period where um, the new, the scientists, the, the students of the post-war era yeah. were too focused on uh, almost, yeah, actually too focused on abandoning theory and they had gone mm. off their roots or something like this. Yeah. And that prompted my, a question for me was, yeah. what is the value of theory? Why is that a necessary thing? Oh yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah. So, so you're absolutely right that in the post-war period, um, you know, there was a lot of money and outside influence sort of pouring into physics you know, as a result of the Manhattan Project, and there was this demand for practical results. And, uh, and you know, there's nothing wrong with working on practical results. Sure. Um, and a lot of physicists were motivated to do that. But, um, but yeah, this was at the expense of thinking about what the theory meant. Gotcha. And, and the question that you just asked, you know, okay, well, what's the value of thinking about what the theory means? What's the value of theory? Right. Um, without a real picture of what the theory means, you know, the picture that we have of what our best theories, what our best scientific theories tell us about the world, that picture influences the development of science. Hmm. You know, uh, it, it, it doesn't just tell us, oh, this is what the theory tells us about the world, it also influences what experiments we choose to perform. It influences how we interpret the results of those experiments, and it influences how we come up with the next theory, right? Because quantum mechanics and quantum physics, it's not done. There's going to be another theory. You know, we, we, we all know that in physics. We know that it's not done if, if only because we can't figure out how to make it work with Einstein's theory of general relativity, the theory of gravity. Mm. So we're looking for this theory of quantum gravity. We don't have it. Everyone agrees that we don't have it. Um, and the picture that we have of what quantum mechanics tells us about the world influences the search for that theory. I see. Uh, and, this is, and this is not just you know, me throwing out some sort of ideological position here that, that I hold. This is a historical fact. You know, uh, they, it's borne out by the history of science that the development of new theories is, is heavily influenced by the picture of the world that comes with our old theories. I see. Yeah. So, so for example, um, you know, if, if Copernicus had not come up with the idea of the sun being at the center of the solar system rather than the earth, mm -hmm. then Newton would not have been able to do the work that he did. Uh -huh. um, you know, because it, he needed Kepler to come up with his laws of planetary motion, which were influenced sure. by Copernicus. Uh, and without all of that work, 
uh, it's kind of hard to imagine that Darwin would have been able to be audacious enough to suggest that humans are not at the center of creation, that in fact we're just another kind of animal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then this filters out into the wider culture as well. It's not just science, um, you know, without, without the idea that the sun is actually at the center of the solar system, without the idea that humans are just another part of the giant tree of life on Earth, um, Stanley Kubrick wouldn't have been able to film 2001. Oh, man. Right? Yeah, that yeah. wouldn't have happened. Yikes. Uh, so, so, you know, the picture of the world that comes with the science influences the future development of that scientific field. It influences the development of all other scientific fields, and it ultimately filters out into the rest of human endeavor as a whole. You know, politics, art, economics, man. you know, religion, you name it. Wild. Yeah. The effect is just immense. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. That actually brings up... Um, Mentioning these other fields, you begin one of the chapters with a quote from a writer, George Luis Borges. Yes. And this guy rocks. I mean, if yeah. there's anyone who, any scientist that is looking for a, you know, a book recommendation, it's yeah. going to be this guy. It's, yeah, Borges is amazing. Yeah. He rocks. And, yeah. the, and the story you, you reference is particularly interesting because oh, yeah, it's this, story. it's awesome, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how to say that name, but T-L-O-N. Oh, yeah, the, Tlon, I think. Yeah. yeah. We, yeah. I, I always wing it and just kind of cough. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah, yeah. Tlon. <laughs> it works. Yeah, it works. Yeah. That, as I recall, is a story of the a, a sort of exploration for a truth, but then looking back at where the the origin started, it's actually the the origin point is gone. Yeah, there's it's it's erased, which is typical of Borges actually. But yeah. that's an interesting place to begin your book. If if things build on each other, what happens when you find out the step before was totally false? I mean. That's kind of how science works, right? You know, we build off of a foundation, and after a while, the theories change so much that when we go back to the earlier theories, we find that, you know, they're just completely wrong. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the, the idea that the, um, you know, it's, it's not that Copernicus, to go back to that example, just because mm. it's a, a clean example, yeah, yeah. it's not that Copernicus said, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's not true that the Earth is at the center of the universe. Um, in fact, the sun is at the center of the solar system, and the sun is just one of hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way, huh. and there are lots of other galaxies. Copernicus didn't say anything like that. He said, the Earth's not at the center, the sun's at the center. Gotcha. But that's not true, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then eventually we discovered, oh, no, 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 the sun's not at the center of the universe, it's at the center of the solar system. Yeah. Solar system's nothing special. And, and also, Copernicus didn't get it completely right in other ways. You know, he said that everything orbits the sun in circular orbits. That's not true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the orbits around the sun are elliptical, and some of them are, yeah. you know, not even closed orbits. Uh, and then there's and, and even so a situation, yeah. I mean, on the scientific level, there's going to be the upgrade, I guess, the 2.0 of the theory coming up. Sure, yeah. But then even in the research, it seemed like there were I mean, it's just bound to happen. There are going to be like documents are missing. Or you mentioned um, earlier there was uh, a female physicist who had proved yep. um, von von Neumann. Yeah. yeah, proved him wrong thirty years before that even happened. Yeah. yeah so yeah. there's also there's a, there's an extra layer of difficulty finding the right story in the story. Is that? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You're how talking did you, about the process of writing the book? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that that spins me back to that. How did you manage? This these gaps, this whole. I mean, is it? Are we going with like this is what we got right now, and we're, we're improving also the book with the theory too? Or yeah, I mean, it's hard. Yeah. That's a hard question. I mean, so okay. So I'm gonna get yeah. a little abstract. Let's go. Um, so you know, I was talking before about that spreadsheet of where everyone was. Right. On. Right. Okay. Uh, let's get even more ridiculous than that. Let's have a spreadsheet of. Um, you know, like how much of each chemical element was in each location, Dang. 
over the course of over the course of you know the history that I talk about in this book, right? Sure. It'd be a ridiculous spreadsheet, but it'd be finite. And, and that would be, you know, a perfect accounting of every single fact, right? So that's at one end of a spectrum. Okay. A completely incomprehensible list of facts. Completely true, perfect fidelity to the truth, but completely incomprehensible and missing some very important components of what actually happened. Huh. The other end of the spectrum is a novel, right? Cool. A very comprehensible and very compelling narrative that bears absolutely no relationship at all to the truth, right? <laughs> the job is to find something in the middle, right? right? Okay. And, it's, and it's not just to find something in the middle for the practical reason of no one would read the spreadsheet, mm -hmm. and if you publish the novel and said it was nonfiction, you know, they'll, they'll you know, throw tomatoes at you and never publish you again, right? Damn. Yeah. It's, it's also that... Um, either end of that is a disservice to the truth, right? Mm -hmm. The novel is an obvious disservice to the truth, but so is the spreadsheet, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because there are important connections between facts that, that are missing there. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and it's also a disservice to the truth because it's incomprehensible. Uh, and you want to make this a story that people can actually understand. So the question is, how do you find a narrative line that uh, strikes the right balance between... Uh, perfect anodyne factual fidelity mm -hmm. and perfect narrative fidelity, right? Wow. Yeah. Um, without betraying either one, right? You don't want to make up something because it makes for a better story. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the, the answer is it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> that's the job. Yeah, yeah, that's the job. Exactly. Like the, the answer is you wake up and you set a timer and you say, okay, for the next hour, I'm going to try to write. And then I'm going to take a 10 minute break and I'm going to do it, you know, mm -hmm. eight more times. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and if I have 600 more words at the end of the day, that is in line with what my outline says I should have, then I'm going to say, okay, good enough. And we'll come back and fix it and edit. I see. You know, I mean, it's, it's, but finding, finding the right people to focus on is also a question in a sense, it's also determined by what historical documents we have, right? Sure. sure. Um, you know, there's, there's this question of, of, uh, who do we know about and what happened? And, you know, people have written histories of this period before, um, not that many. There's a lot more histories of the period immediately before, uh, like the first quarter of the 20th century. Um, but a lot of those histories were missing important documents that weren't found. And there are other documents that we're still waiting for. I mean, I filed a Freedom of Information Act uh, request with the FBI and the CIA about one of the main characters in the book. Still waiting to hear back from the FBI and the CIA so they could neither confirm nor deny that they had any such files. Wow. And if they were, they'd be classified. Uh, so now I have to file a mandatory declassification review. Because uh, the files are definitely there. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. And when those come out, probably I'll have to change something in the book. But maybe there'll be a second edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. Um, That's brilliant. I mean, I think, I think that it's a question of finding a compelling, factual narrative that, allow, that gives me the excuse to talk about the scientific concepts that I wanted to unpack in the book in a way that makes sense to people who don't know any physics. That's perfect. Yeah, and I, I was actually kind of drawn in just based off the characterization of these people. I mean, it was almost like reading about heroes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, who is he going to meet? You know, this man coming out of this castle. Yes. Bore. You know, I'm like, oh man, that's crazy. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. Um, to, to take it towards the end of the book, you asked yeah. the question, what is science? Yeah. And to me, that actually took me by surprise because I'm kind of like, oh, I 
I thought I thought you knew. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where what did we just end up? Yeah. Can you can we take that question on and wrap it up there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I I don't think that we. I'm not going to try to put a like full theory of exactly how the scientific method works out there, right? We'll like put a middle ground. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say there are a lot of ideas out there about how the scientific method works that are overly simplistic, uh-huh. right? There's this idea that, oh, you know, science, there's, there's what I, I, I think I call the, the Sherlock Holmes story of science, right? Science is just, you know, you find a bunch of facts, and then you find the one theory that can account for those facts. And that's never how science works, because that's literally impossible. You cannot, there, for any collection of facts, there is an infinite collection of theories that could all account for those facts. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, okay, how do we distinguish between those theories? Well, that's hard. We have some guidelines, you know, and that's where things like uh, a desire for simplicity or for mathematical beauty or consistency with other ideas we have about how the world works. Wow. That's where those things come in. Um, but again, overly simplistic ideas about how those things come in are wrong, right? You know, people talk about Occam's razor looking for the thing that posits the least number of, of different entities. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not clear how to apply that, and sometimes that's wrong, right? You know, um, you, could, you could say that Occam's razor would eliminate um, all sorts of, of valid scientific theories, right? You know, uh, you, could, you could come up with a theory of chemistry that says that, um, that says that there's only four elements, and then a theory of chemistry that says, no, there's 110. Huh. The 110 element one is more correct, but there's more different things, right? I see. Um, uh, I, and, and, you know, there's other things, like people talk about, oh, falsifiability, and like, well, mm. no, naively understood falsifiability, the, the idea that a theory must be, there must be a crucial test that you can perform that will prove the theory wrong. No, that doesn't really work either, because, you know, the, the most straightforward and simple version of that, mm-hmm. um, there are no scientific theories that really meet that standard, because you can always save a scientific theory by throwing out some other idea in the face of new data. Yeah. Um, and, and, and none of this is, is mine, by the way. All of this stuff that I just said about the nature of scientific, the nature of the scientific method and scientific progress, this is stuff that historians of science and philosophers of science have talked about for decades. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but um, can but, we say that there is um, maybe in a simple, simple version? It's it's an experience between an observer and an observed that came up as a, a, a theme throughout. But yeah. how far does that go? Well, I mean, to get to get to like we've been talking a lot about the process of the book, but to get to you know the substance of the book, what it's about, um, I really think that. Well, let me. Let me back up. Yeah. There is this idea that the observer plays a special role in quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. that, that when you observe something that's somehow a physical interaction that is different from any other, um, the evidence for that is not great. Uh-huh. Uh, it, in fact, uh, it really seems like that's not true, um, and, and, or at the very least, we're not forced to believe that by quantum physics. And yet a lot of the founders of quantum physics, Niels Bohr primary among them, uh, really took that as the lesson of quantum physics. And they wrapped that up in, in a sort of 
semi-coherent collection of ideas called the Copenhagen interpretation and said, this is the way that we should think about quantum physics. Mm -hmm. And people took that and ran with it. But it's simply, it's definitely not the only option on the table. It's not really a single coherent idea. Mm -hmm. And most of the ways of making it into a single coherent idea are provably not true. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there are other options available and yet the idea that this problem is solved and that this is the way of thinking about quantum physics uh, is still quite pervasive among professional physicists, not as much as it used to be, but enough that the study of this field, quantum foundations, is still frowned upon by a lot of professional physicists. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. That, so and the the Copenhagen interpretation was a, it almost plays the role of like a protagonist in the book too. Yeah. Why is this such a hot spot? Well, because the Copenhagen interpretation uh, says that you shouldn't ask the question, "What does quantum physics tell us about the real world?" And you know, I think that's bullshit. Nice. Uh, I think that that's just not <laughs> Strikes true. Strikes back. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, this book was my attempt to say, look, you know, I think that that's ridiculous. And not only do I think that that's ridiculous, but a lot of other physicists throughout the last 90 years have thought that that's ridiculous. And they've pointed out very good reasons that it's ridiculous. And yet most of those reasons have been ignored by most physicists and not for particularly good reasons. I see. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was a lot of the motivation for writing the book. Okay, okay. Yeah. And we're back at, a, at proving, you know, this is the point, this is where we have to go from next point on. Kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, is, you know, the question is, okay, so then given that we don't have a solution to this problem or that we don't have a generally agreed upon solution to this problem, oh. where do we go from here? That's great. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate this conversation. It's been a blast, man. Thanks, yeah. We'll call it there and we'll do a, a book signing over there, but let's uh, give Adam a hand. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the 1888 Center podcast. Support our mission by subscribing, reviewing, or donating today. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and Trevor Allred. Our music is composed and performed by Dan Record. Visit us in Old Town Orange, California or online at 1888.center. <laughs>